You know, the Marine Corps has a slogan. You see it on the screen. I just want a few good men. A few good men. And quite honestly, with what they put those guys through that joined the Marine Corps, only the best of the best survive. And by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't say that this church is proud, pleased, and honored to have at least one um, Marine. Wesley Capps is serving with distinction. Marines say they want a few good men. I want to raise the bar this morning, if I may. I don't want it just to be a few good men. I want to change that to godly men. You see, the truth is, we've heard uh, Bill Gaither's rendition of uh, um, a few good men. We even saw it displayed with those, so- with those soldiers coming out. But does God really want good men? Or does he want godly men? You see, the truth is, godly men are good, but good men are not necessarily godly. I'm going to put a chart up here. I'll put it together this week. Good men on one side, godly men on the other. Look at these five, six, seven characteristics. Good men are well-liked. Godly men are well-loved. Good men do the right thing, does things right. Good men have a view of today. Godly men have a view of eternity. Good men are known for their actions. Godly men are known for their hearts. Good men meet the physical needs. Godly men meet spiritual needs. Good men tend to follow the crowd. Godly men follow Christ. So the question becomes today, what is God really looking for? Is he looking for the good or is he looking for the godly? As I began to ponder and pray over what God was looking for, good or godly men, my mind went to two stories in the Bible. I started to try to preach both stories, but I'm only going to preach one of them to you. But I want to begin by just mentioning the first one. The first one is found in Second Chronicles. It's about Judah's king, Asa. Scripture begins by saying that Asa was a good king. In fact, he went in. Is this microphone a little hot for anybody else? Because it's really hot for me up here. It may just be the monitors up here, guys. Asa was told, it was told in Scripture that he was a good king. He took away, he took away all the pagan worship, all the, the altars that they had, the high place, most of the high places they had. He even chopped up the, the um, beans and chopped up other things. And he influenced people, the whole nation of Judah, to worship God and God only. In fact, he influenced them so much that when he was attacked by that million-plus man army of Ethiopia, the first thing he did was not sit down and devise a strategy. This king went to God. And against incredible odds, God won the victory for King Asa. But now hang on, folks. That sounds good. Asa had peace for 30 years, but then 30 years later... The king of Israel, King Basha, attacked him. This time, instead of going to the, the king of kings, instead of going to God, look where he went. He went to Ben-Hadad over in Aram. Now, let this be a lesson to you. King Asa and King Ben-Hadad defeated King Basha. And you think, today we think 
if you get success, God has to be on your side. But that wasn't the case with Asa. God was very displeased. In fact, he was so displeased with King Asa that he sent Hananiah down to tell him how displeased he was. And the summary statement in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it's going to be on the screen, chapter 16, verse 9, reads like this. For the eyes of the Lord run or range, depending on what scripture you look at, run or range to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. May I say this to you? If you're not listening, please let me have your eyes just for a second. God is looking for people who are completely his. I read this week about somebody saying, I just want $3 worth of God, please. I just want $3 worth of God. I want enough to be comforted, but not enough to be changed. I want enough for my ears to be tickled, but not for my insides to be transformed. I want enough of God to be saved from hell, but not made into a servant. You see, God knows nothing about that kind of relationship. He knows nothing about the relationship that just says, God, I just want a little bit of you right now. Jehovah God is still today looking for those whose hearts are completely His. He's still ranging. He is still looking to and fro, trying to find men, in particular ladies, you too, whose heart are completely His, but beware of something. To answer the call of God and be a godly man is not for the faint of heart. It is not for those who are half-hearted, those who are lackluster, those who who just want to take it when they can and give it away. It requires commitment. It requires courage. And his eyes are still looking. Story one. Story two is found over in Ezekiel. If you will, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 22 if you're looking in the Pew Bible. It's page, uh, Pew Bible page 718, 719. As far as I'm concerned, this story is a sister story to what we just talked about with King Asa. But I want to take a little more time because I want you to really understand. Just to make sure that everybody's awake. How many of you remember the children of Israel being led out of Egypt? Would you please raise your hand? That way I know that you're still alive. Good deal. Children of Israel, God's chosen people, they were a bunch of Baptists. They couldn't get along. You know how I know? Because about 922, they got so it outs with each other, they split into two and formed them, Keith, a new country. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. I always didn't like that in my history. I always wanted Israel to be in the south because I liked Israel better than I liked Judah. I liked that name. And yet Israel, as we'll see, was the country where if they're noted for one thing, every king, almost, almost every king of Israel were known for their wickedness, known to not love God, known to run away from God. Judah had their days, but but Israel really had their days. And God sent both countries warnings. And he said, if you don't straighten up, something's going to happen. Now, I remember my dad used to tell me, that's interesting, I mentioned my dad on Father's Day, when my dad used to tell me, boy, you don't straighten up, something's going to happen. Could I get an amen? I didn't want that to happen. Do you all know what I'm talking about? 
God said, if you don't straighten up, something's going to happen. Now, remember, 922 approximately is when they split into two countries. So let me tell you what happened to both countries because they didn't straighten up. In 722, the Assyrians came in, and they annihilated this northern kingdom, and they took the people captive. 140 or so years later, the southern kingdom was annihilated by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and they were taken away into captivity. For There was no longer a nation of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. Now, you want to know a summary statement as to why this happened? By the way, if you want to prove all these things, the first story, I, I read the statement out of Second Chronicles uh, 16, you can read 14, 15, 16. Ezekiel, you can read the uh, two previous chapters, 20, 21, and 22, and you'll see this right. But the summary statement is in verse 30, very familiar verse of chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can look there with it. I won't ask you to stand because it's only one verse. It will appear on the screen. Ezekiel 22:30. This is what the Lord said to Israel. I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it. And those last five words are telling. But I found no one. Father... We know that you're still searching. We know you still desire to find your people. And I pray that even today, this Father's Day, I pray that today as you search this building and you search every heart, I pray your gaze will fall on our hearts and that we will be found among those that are completely and totally yours. In your name, amen. He says, I search for a man among them. May I tell you that God is still searching today? He searches for men among the people. Yeah, he searches for women too, and he calls women, but today's Father's Day. So ladies, what words I'm going to tell the men can transfer to you. He searched for men. I searched for a man among them who would repair the walls. Now, Brother Jerry, what walls? We know that might have been the walls of Jerusalem or some other great city. What walls? In our country, in our day, we don't build walls. Please listen. We desperately need some men who will stand up and repair the walls of this country, of this culture, and even of this church. We need men who will take up the hedge. We're, we're in a country where this week, once again, I have a whole page, by the way, for those who want to know that this president is the first in a lot of stuff. I have a whole page. I handed it to Wanda the other day, and she goes, yep, that sounds about right. But how about a president who is now commandeered INS to tell it to override our elected officials? You go, well, Brother Jerry, that's not a big deal to me. Well, let me tell you something. It better be a big deal because we are losing rights left and right. 
And all that has to happen for bad things to come about in this country is for good people, godly people to do nothing. God is still looking for men to stand in the gap. Our morals are down the toilet. Well, they're not really down the toilet because we can't decide what our morals are anymore. We have a country that's disintegrating. We have churches that are disintegrating. We have a culture that's disintegrating. And God is searching for men who will repair the wall, but not only repair the wall, He's looking for men who will stand in the gap. There's a gap that exists between God and you. Did you know that? There's a a gap that exists between God and you. You see, God innately is righteous. You and I, by our nature, are unrighteous. God is holy. We are unholy. And you say, well, Brother Jerry, didn't Jesus just stand in the gap? Yes, he did. And you know what Jesus' call was to his 12 men? Follow me. He calls men to have a heart for Him. He calls men to have a heart completely devoted to Him. And before I get to the characteristics of these few godly men, let's talk about what it means to be a man to start with. You see, there's a difference in a grown-up boy and a man, right, ladies? There's a difference in just a, a, a age male and a man. And you know the sad part is our culture has not laid out what it really means to be a man. Oh, I'm going to tell you a couple of things in a second, a couple of extremes that we have in our culture. Four years ago, as we sat through six months and studied and prayed and worked through six months of men's fraternity, Bob Lewis taught us what it means to be a man. And let me just remind you what, it, what that means. A real man is one who rejects passivity. You know, one of the worst things we do in a church is we demasculinize our men. We think that godliness is passivity. Well, let me just say this to you about the God that I serve, the God I read about here. God is aggressively active and actively aggressive. He arrested Elijah. He arrested Noah. He arrested Daniel. He arrested Saul of Tarsus. And he'll arrest you. You see, to be godly is to be sold out to him. And to be a man is to reject this passivity. A man is, a real man is one who rejects passivity. Number two, he accepts responsibility. You know, playing the blame game, passing the buck has become a national pastime. Please listen to me, young men. God calls you to be responsible. Those men who stood around as fathers, He called you to be responsible. He gave you responsibility for those under your charge. Even today, as you have adult children, they're still looking to you for an example. It's your responsibility. You can't give it to your wife. A man is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, and leads courageously. I tell you what this country needs. It needs some men who will quit being politician and start being statesmen. A politician sticks his finger in the air and he finds out what way the wind, political wind's blowing and he goes that way so that he can get more votes. A statesman says, like Martin Luther, here I stand, God help me. 
He does what is right and lets the chips fall where they may. That's a man. Rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and he does all three of those because, number four, he expects a reward, a greater reward, God's reward. You see, the godly man has his eye on eternity. Yes, he's working in the world. Yes, he's influencing in the world. But he has his eye on eternity, and he's expecting a reward there. Man, how do you stack up? A real man is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects a greater reward, God's reward. So, what are the characteristics of a godly man? And in the moments that remain, let me share these. There's three of them. You can write them on the back of your bulletin. A godly man is one who, first of all, demonstrates compassion. Demonstrates compassion. Now, that's not big on anybody's hit list of men today, but it's still true. See, in our world, in our culture, we have two extremes of manhood. We have the cold, hard, calloused, hard heart of the Steven Seagal character in his movie, or it's just Hatfields and McCoys, those people who can pray in one voice, curse in the next, and kill somebody in the next. A man who can kill without even expressing any emotion or remorse. Tough man. On the other extreme is the man who has been robbed of his masculinity, and he's the effeminate man. He's been discarded of and robbed of all of his testosterone attributes. And he's taken on qualities that are quite feminine. For personally, let me just say this to you. I love those feminine qualities. I am glad God took a little more time when he designed a woman, made her good to look at, made her uh, uh, this vessel that's so wonderful. It looks wonderful on a woman. It looks horrible on a man. And I'll just say this, the taming of manhood may be the number one culprit in the decay and decline of the church and Christianity today. Jesus wasn't an effeminate man. He was a carpenter. That doesn't mean much today because we have power tools. We can cut it up. We can go to Lowe's or Home Depot and get our lumber. But you know, back in those days... Jesus, as a carpenter, he had power tools. It was all the power he could muster in that saw. And he had to go into the, into the woods, and he had to cut a tree down. When he pelled that tree, he had to take his saw and cut his lumber from the woods, and then he didn't have a car or a truck or a trailer or a tractor to put it on. He had his back to put it on, and he carried it back into town. I declare to you, Jesus was a young man, and he was a young man that was probably in pretty good shape. And yet he was a man full of compassion. When he saw the multitudes, he had compassion. When he saw the woman at the well, he had compassion. When he saw the woman caught in adultery, he had compassion. When he went to the tomb of Lazarus, he had so much compassion. John eleven thirty five says he cried. You see, the truth is, godly men are men who are compassionate. 
when Paul gives us the fruits of the Spirit, at least three of those fruits of the Spirit deal with being compassionate. A compassionate man sees the needs of others. A compassionate man not only sees the need, but he wants to do something about it. A compassionate man is one who wants to take responsibility and wants to take action. Godly men are men that God has called to stand on the wall and or make up, or repair the wall and stand in the gap because they are men, first of all, of compassion. Man, God's looking today. Does He find a compassionate man in you? Second thing, not only does a godly man demonstrate compassion, but number two, he's a man of deep conviction. Deep conviction. I started to use deep commitment, but commitment seems to have fallen on difficult, hard times these days. I'm talking about your convictions, men. You know, those unshakable, those unbreakable, those unchangeable principles that drive your life. It is sad for me to say that most of the time, most of us have convictions about things that really don't matter. Let me pick on you and pick on me. I'll pick on me first. I am a golfer. I love to play golf. But please listen. It really doesn't matter who wins the U.S. Open today. It really doesn't matter who the number one golfer in the world is. So now let me pick on you. It don't matter who the national champion is. Five years, people won't even remember it. A hundred years, nobody will know. It won't matter, parents, who won the beauty pageant. It won't matter if your child made the band or the cheerleading squad or the ball team. We get more upset about them not making those things than our children not making eternal decisions of following Christ. Godly men have deep convictions about the things of God and their relevance to the souls of men today. Godly men are concerned about the souls of their family. The reason they're so concerned because they know, a godly man knows. A godly man knows that there's only one way to heaven, and that is through a personal relationship with Jesus. Letting Jesus control their thoughts, their lives, their actions, their hearts. By the way, godly men struggle. Now, women, you need to hear this. Godly men struggle. They're not God. They're godly. Nobody struggled in the New Testament more than Peter. It seemed that every time Peter opened his mouth, he was putting his foot in it. In fact, somebody said Peter was very flexible. He was capable of putting both feet in his mouth at the same time. Paul. Paul struggled. The man who wrote half of the New Testament. And this is what he wrote. He said, here's the way I am. Those things that I want to do, I don't do. And those things I don't want to do, I wind up doing them. But here's the truth, guys. I'm going to forget what's behind and I'm going to march for what's ahead and I'm going to keep my eye on the mark of the high, the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And he charted his course. 
The godly man says this. Are you listening, men? The godly man says this. If you want to go with me, let's go. If not, I'll see you later because as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not just going to talk about it. We're going to do it. That's the heart of a godly man with godly convictions. But there's one last thing. A few godly men, those men demonstrate compassion. They have deep conviction. And the third thing is they display Christ. When Johnny Weiss became our minister of music, first song he sang was, You're the only Jesus that some people ever see. I ask you this question today, men and ladies. If you are the only Jesus some people see, what is it that they're seeing? You see, guys, before you can display Christ, you have to walk with Christ. Before you can walk with Christ, you have to know Christ. And before you can know Christ, you have to surrender your life to Him. You have to repent of your sin. You have to change your direction. We have been fed a bill of goods for too long that you don't have to change anything. You just come to the church, walk down an aisle, take the preacher by the hand, get baptized, and take your place in the pew. That's not what this book says. The Bible, and by the way, there are many people who say, well, you know, I know Christ, but I can know Him from my recliner than just as well as I can know Him in church. The Greek word for that is blognos. Bolognos, that's the Greek word for baloney. You see, the truth is, our culture today knows a lot about knowing the church. In fact, they come to church. They join the church. They walk with the church. Some then go their way, they walk away from the church. I just want to be clear. I don't believe any truly born-again person can walk away from the church because it is the church that Jesus died for. It is the church that Jesus loved. Brother Jerry, you think nobody ever should change churches? Well, if God leads them. I think there's way too much church hopping. See, we're talking about a planted life. And about these folks who stay home, the Bible gives us no credence about any believer ever staying home and away from church. Every believer in the Bible is tied to the church. And I believe that today, I personally have a deep conviction today that there are many people even sitting in the pew, possibly in this room, who have a deep commitment to the church and not a deep connection to Christ. Because you see, if you, when you walk with Christ, your life is transformed. It's a new life. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. You can't hang on to your sour attitude. You can't hang on to your old life. You can't hang on to your old habits and belong to him. It doesn't work. To know him is to be renewed in your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind.
The godly man knows this because godly man knows Jesus because Jesus has transformed his life. Listen, somebody don't change your life and you don't know who they are. Can I say that again? Somebody doesn't change your life and you not know who they are. If somebody changes your life, you'll remember their name the rest of your life and you will spend the rest of your life trying to make up to them what they've done for you. Godly men, are you displaying Christ today? Can people see Jesus in you? And by the way, when you follow Jesus, Jesus made this this statement. He said, I only do what I see my Father do. So can you get the track? God, Jehovah God, the first person in the Trinity, sets the example. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, Sees, Father, sees the Father doing it, does likewise. We see Jesus, and we follow his example. Jesus loved people. He taught people. He served people. He saved people. He touched people. His life was given to others. It is true, folks. God is looking for men who are full of compassion, those men who laugh, love, and cry. He's looking for those men who face eternity and they're not afraid to die because they know the one who holds the future. And he's not some distant stranger. But make no mistake, God's call, it's not an easy call. It requires courage. We began talking about good old good boys, good men. Every time I hear that term, I'm reminded of the 80s. Now, a classic group singing a new song. When Eddie started that group back in the 80s, Eddie Carswell wrote this song. Stuck with me all these years, 30 years now. Good old boys won't make it into heaven. Good old boys won't wear a crown. Good old boys won't live forever where the saints of God are found. Don't you dare be misled. Only Jesus gives real joy. You can take it from me, because I used to be a good old boy. The problem with good old boys is while they may be good enough for you, they're never good enough for God because compared to him our best is as filthy rags God is looking for some godly men will you be one of that number let's pray